Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. Gather, welcome to church. Thanks for being with us today. My name is Josh and I'm the pastor here. Uh, Hey, today is Q&A Sunday, so you maybe didn't know that it was question and answer Sunday, but everything is a little bit different today. Uh, Today I'm going to answer nine questions that you submitted anonymously uh, online uh, today in person. Uh, I'm also going to take some questions live, so really our whole liturgy is devoted to just a conversation. And so I want to kind of set some expectations for this. So first, I don't have all the answers, so I'm going to give my opinion on some things. I'm going to give my current state of thought on some things, but I don't want to be the person for you who's supposed to have all the answers because I just clearly do not. And then uh, agreement isn't required. So if you disagree with me, that's totally fine. Uh, A lot of times I disagree with me. And I've changed my mind on so much of this stuff over the last three, four, five years. And my expectation is that I'll probably change my mind again. So I'm pretty confident if I watch this back in like 2025, I will disagree with myself. So feel free uh, to disagree with me. And then I'm going to roll through these pretty quick. So there's nine questions. I'm hoping to spend you know, maybe 20 minutes answering these. And so uh, that's not a long time on each one. So this is just the beginning of the conversation. So if you are interested in this, if you have more questions, if you disagree especially, let me know. Let's get together. I'm hoping that I get to schedule uh, some lunches and some coffees and some happy hour drinks because of this conversation, that we can continue these uh, questions into maybe like an in-person, really good conversation. And then lastly, another just expectation. I didn't over-prep on this. Okay, so these questions came in. I've dropped them in a note on my phone. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time. Normally with my sermons, I manuscript all of them. Um, And so it's like word for word notes. I don't have that. I didn't want to over prepare. Uh, I didn't want to kind of overshape or over protect my answers. I just want this to be as natural as possible. So I have some stuff written down and I probably will wish that I had more, but I don't have a lot of notes. So this is just as open and honest as I can be here. So uh, let's get into these nine questions. Okay, so here's the first question. Uh, It says, I I feel that scripture has stances, maybe even commandments or rules on what God wants for us and our flourishing. Is there some kind of middle ground? How does one wisely discern how and when to live out both rules and personal freedom? I want to be as free as I can be while also honoring and practicing the ways of Jesus. So the question is uh, freedom with kind of the guidance of the scripture, the, some of the rules and commandments that the Bible raise, uh, uh, give, gives to us. So how do we kind of balance those things, our own personal freedom with doing what the Bible says to do? So I, uh, a couple things on this. I always go back to what Jesus says. Um, he gets kind of this line of questioning where they're trying to, uh, the, the Pharisees are kind of trying to trick Jesus And he gives this metaphor. He says that all of the law and prophets, so uh, all of the rules, all of the commandments, all of the stories, all of the the ideas about God, they all hang on loving God and loving your neighbor. And the way I think about it is literally like a, a closet with a rod and hangers. And so you can imagine that all of those rules and stories about God and the way we think about God and all those commandments all of those, none of those stay up without loving God and loving your neighbor. And so as I think about all the stances, rules, ideas in the Bible, I think the most important two, just clearly from the words of Jesus, 
are loving God and loving your neighbor. So if you start there, it helps a lot because nothing else really matters if you're not doing those two. And then often I try to just change my, um, uh, I try to change my language away from sin and commandments and guilt and uh, these kind of heavy religious language and towards words like flourishing and health. So instead of saying, what am I going to be in trouble for if I don't do? Um, I might just say, does this behavior or this decision or does this way of being in the world, does it contribute to my own flourishing and health? And likewise, does this behavior, these decisions, this way of being in the world, does it contribute uh, to the flourishing and health of the people around me? And just kind of use that as the beginning of the flowchart. Does this contribute to my health and flourishing? Yes or no. Is this about loving my neighbor? Yes or no. Does it contribute to their health and flourishing? So I just kind of use those two things. So first, everything hangs on loving God and loving your neighbor. And then two, just kind of change the language around. But really good question. Second question, what is Gather doing to effectively reach out to black and brown communities uh, and how is Gather welcome, welcoming to black and brown individuals? So kind of a two-part question here. So first, um, we aren't doing much to reach out to black and brown communities. And um, maybe we should be, and I would love some help uh, on that. So if you have ideas about how to do that, we don't intentionally or unintentionally reach out to any particular community. So there isn't a community of people we're doing outreach to or some people we're not doing outreach to. And so uh, maybe we should be. And so I, I'm not saying that that uh, shouldn't change, uh, but we're not. So we're not doing really any intentional outreach. But uh, we have worked pretty hard to create inside of our spaces, especially inside of our Sunday liturgy, a safe space for black and brown people. So um, really this started a couple years ago when we invited Andre Franklin onto our team and he was able to just speak um, really openly and honestly with me about uh, how he was doing, what he was processing, the ways he was thinking and his kind of experience in the world. And it just kind of helped us see that the people that were showing up here uh, were having a different experience than me. And uh, maybe we needed to make room for their experience. And so Andre has been really amazing in that. And then uh, we worked really hard to add a couple of amazing black women to our board because we wanted the people who were making decisions, the people in the room making the decisions at the, you know, the top of our leadership structure. We wanted that to be a, a group of people that wasn't just uh especially white men. And so we, we diversified that group and added a couple of amazing uh, black women. And so what, what we've thought more about is how do we create space that's safe and really that we hold space for experiences that are different than ours. And so if you're in person with us, especially you'll feel that, um, that when, uh, when a week is particularly difficult, uh, we try to hold space for uh, lots of different experiences of that. And so I'm really grateful for Andre, uh, for Udoro, and for Danny, who jo joined our board, and, and for the folks in our community who work to make it safe. But yes, two-part question. We haven't done a lot of outreach. Maybe we should. And then two, we've worked internally um, to be welcoming, but really to create a safe environment. Question number three, uh, should churches be tax exempt and why? Some of you do not care about that at all, but I'm going to give you my answer anyway. So I think, yes, uh, churches should be tax exempt. And here is my why. Um, I think churches should be especially incentivized to be organized as a nonprofit. 
I'm going to say it again because that was a lot of words. I think churches should be especially incentivized to be organized as a nonprofit because religious institutions, and especially in America, churches, uh, they can get off the rails real quick. And can you imagine if churches were not incentivized to organize as a nonprofit, if they were able to be private companies, privately held, privately funded, uh, privately profited off of, if you think churches are out of hand now, with their spending and celebrity pastors. If churches were not incentivized to be organized as a nonprofit, it would be really, really, really out of hand. So uh, should churches have to file a 990 like regular nonprofits? Probably. Uh, should there be a maximum amount of property that churches can hold without paying property taxes? Yeah, maybe. Um, but just for reference, the, the median size church in the U.S. is 65 people participating. So this doesn't apply to like 99% of church experiences. But uh, I do think maybe there's like some maximums there. But in general, I think, yes, churches should be tax exempt because they should be incentivized to be organized as a nonprofit. Uh, question number four, uh, what's the most traditional theological idea or concept that you still hold on to? I like this question. So uh, in general, I still hold on to a lot of traditional theological ideas. And I, I know you may be like, no, you don't. I listen to you talk uh, every week. But I do. I still hold on to a lot of traditional ideas. It's not that I don't believe them. It's not that I don't hold on to them. I just hold them differently. So I still believe uh, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. I, I do. And some of you are like, no, you don't. I do. I do. I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it is a divine text given to us and protected for us by God. I believe that. That is a traditional view. But I hold it in such a way that if I found out tomorrow that that isn't all true, I would be okay. And I still believe that God is the creator of all things, that there is a being outside of time and space that created us and all of this. But I don't believe, like I used to, that God created it in seven 24-hour days like 5,000 years ago. So I just hold all of my traditional views a little differently, but I still hold a, a lot of traditional views. And uh, I'm, Andre's going to answer that too in person, and uh, I'm excited to hear his answers about the traditional views that he holds on to. Uh, question number five, if God is real, why is there so much suffering and hardship around us? And how are we as followers of Jesus supposed to feel and respond to the suffering? So um, this is a, a good, it's a hard question, right? If God is real, why is all of this so hard? And, um, you know, the story of the Bible is that God entrusts the world to humanity. That God gives the world a mandate uh, to take God, God gives humanity a mandate to take care of the world and each other. That God kind of gives this divine calling on us to care for one another in the world. And so, um, why is there so much suffering? We just keep pursuing power and control and wealth over loving our neighbor and caring for one another and caring for the world. But it do that doesn't answer the question, but like, why doesn't God do anything? And I don't know exactly why God doesn't do anything. I think he does sometimes do things, and I think he is doing things that we don't see. And I think there is this mysterious uh, God, uh, action and presence of God in the world that I don't see or understand, and I do trust that. But yeah, I think that's a good, hard question to say. Why isn't God doing more? I, I do think 
part of that question for all of us is kind of rooted in this idea that for a lot of us, Christianity and following Jesus has been kind of packaged packaged as a commodity and kind of sold to us that if we believe in these ways, if we uh, do these practices, uh, if we participate in the right ways, then our life will get better. You follow Jesus, things will get better. You read your Bible, things will get better. But the Bible and and God never says that participating uh, relieves you of any suffering. Uh, in fact, it, it, it kind of makes it seem like suffering is the way in and through this experience with God. Not, not that following God gets you out of suffering, but it might actually um, be the way that you get to God is through the suffering. Um, and so I know that that doesn't help a lot. Definitely doesn't make you feel better. But um, following God isn't uh, a pathway away from suffering. And then how are we supposed to respond? So the way that I like to think about it is soft-hearted hope. So just responding in a way where it says your question, whoever it was, said, how are we supposed to feel? And I think that's the biggest thing is that we are supposed to feel that with all the suffering happening in our world, we are supposed to feel. Uh, And so uh, I think soft hearted hope is uh, the way to be in the world that you say, I'm not going to get hard hearted to the suffering and pain of other people. I'm going to feel it. But I'm not going. Um, I'm not going to close myself off. I'm still going to be hopeful. And the phrase that we use around here that I use all the time is, "This is hard, but it's not going to be forever." So to be able to say, "I'm going to feel it all. This sucks. It's no good. I am really struggling. This is hard, but I have this hope that says it's not going to be forever. This too shall pass." However cliche that is. So um, yeah, I think that's how we respond that with soft-hearted hope. Uh, question number six, uh, I love this one. Why doesn't Gather do baptisms? Um, this is not an active decision. The, I like this question because it was like, oh man, we should talk about baptism more. So it's not that Gather doesn't do baptisms. This is not an active decision to not do baptisms. We have not been actively counseling people away from getting baptized. Um, this is kind of the passive result, which we, we, we have done a few, uh, especially infant baptisms around here. Uh, which have been beautiful and great. But this is kind of not doing baptisms often. It's kind of a passive result of two things. One, uh, no one is asking to be baptized. So it's not like people are saying, I would really like to be baptized. And me and Andre are like, no, we're not doing that for you. Uh, And then two, I um, I have not had my theology of baptism clearly worked out. And that's on me. So more recently, I've kind of come to a more comfortable place on it, but I haven't had my theology on baptism worked out. I think I have some like baptism trauma of like convincing people that they need to get baptized in order to belong, Um, having people walk down the aisle over and over and over again every time they make that same bad decision uh, so that they can feel better about themselves. I just, I I had some baptism trauma, and so it's taken me a little while to work through that, but we should do baptisms. We're going to do baptisms. Andre and I actually pretty recently talked about baptism. How should we do it? How do we invite people into it? What's the process for that? Uh, And so we're going to do baptisms. If you want to get baptized, come talk to me. I'm going to actively counsel you towards being baptized. I like it. We're going to do it. We do them. Uh, We will. I want to do baptism. So thank you for the question, whoever asked it, because it's helpful for us. Number seven, uh, what is Gather's belief or stance about the Holy Spirit? So Gather as an institution, um, I don't know that we have just like one single stance. You know, 
we're made up of all kinds of different people who feel different ways. But um, I believe the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the very essence of God, but its own individual person. It's good Trinitarian theology. The Spirit of God, it's promised by Jesus. It's poured out on all people in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit is meant to be our comfort, uh, our guide, and an ever-present reminder that God is within us. So the movement of the Bible is that uh, in the Old Testament, you see God for his people, which was revolutionary, that you didn't have to beg a God to be for you. You didn't have to do the special dance, anything like that. God is automatically for God's people. And then when Jesus shows up, we see God with God's people, which again, revolutionary that God would come down and be with God's people. And then when God gives his spirit, the, the revolution there is that God is within his people. And so that's my biggest stance on the Holy Spirit, that um, God is within us. And I don't think there is a special formula or um, uh, a special set of behaviors that allow you more experience of God. Um, I don't think you get any special blessings or gifts if you do the thing just right or you get the formula just right because that would be a manipulation of God, not a blessing from God. And so, uh, yeah, that's my that's my general stance on the Holy Spirit. There's a lot there. If you want to talk more about it, I'm happy to talk more about the Holy Spirit. Question number eight. Uh, we're getting towards the end here. What are your personal journeys to becoming affirming? How did you get here? In your opinion, what is a theology of sex that honors God and self? And how do we establish a Christian sexual ethic, especially for those of us who are queer and do not fall into traditional roles? So um, I don't love the language of affirming and non-affirming. And that's, only, that's just my personal problem. I didn't have to include this at all. But that's my personal problem because I feel like sometimes that language gets kind of taken from the other side and then weaponized against people. But it doesn't matter. Uh, and And for all intents and purposes, I am affirming. I'm fully inclusive. I believe that every person, uh, regardless of their uh, gender identity, their sexual orientation, their race, their class, their uh, nationality, personality, doesn't matter. Everyone should and can participate at every level of the church. Um, and so the way that I got there um, it was just kind of first listening to my LGBTQ friends and family members and congregants who told me about trying to follow Jesus and being continually abused and silenced and pushed out of church communities. And, um, and then I, I read the data about LGBTQ teens and adults uh, and their suicide rates, and especially those who are religious, who are ending their lives because of their experiences in religious communities. And I just decided that I wasn't willing to anymore, because I, I, I have in my life, I, wasn't, I was not willing to hurt people in the name or, of feeling or being right. That, that, that feeling or being right was not a justification for hurting one more single person. And then... Uh, I decided to work on the, the biblical argument and the theological argument, and I think I got there. And if you want to have a longer conversation about what do you do with uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and all of that, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But mostly, I remembered what I talked about at the very beginning, that Jesus says that all of those other commandments hang on this, love God and love your neighbor. And when I looked my LGBTQ neighbors in the eyes, I just thought how silly it would be to parse out what loving them meant. I knew what loving them was. 
It was accepting them, offering them belonging. It was wanting for them all the things I want for my own life, love, happiness, family, belonging. I knew what loving them was. I didn't have to parse out the word, right? And all the other rules and commandments, they hang on that, loving your neighbor. And so uh, I'm happy to talk any other time about all those other uh all those other kind of biblical ideas around uh, affirming theology. And then a sexual ethic. I think that's a great question. Um, And I think all of Paul's talk in the New Testament of sexual immorality, all of it is rooted in the idea of harm. So uh, the the first question in evaluating a, a Christian sexual ethic is, is my sexual behavior harming others? Is my sexual decision-making, my sexual behavior, my sexual desires, does it harm others? And then second, is, is my sexual behavior, is it harming me? And I think all of Paul's uh, sexual immorality talk, the Christian sexual ethic that's given in the New Testament, is rooted in this idea of harm. Am I harming someone else by making these decisions? And I think if we can, if we can use that as our kind of general parameters, I don't think... Um, I don't think your sexuality is offending God. I think it's when you harm someone else, I think that offends God. And so I, I think if we can kind of build our own sexual ethic around those ideas, that if we're harming ourselves, if we're harming others, it does not fit inside any kind of Christian ethic, and uh, especially a Christian sexual ethic. And then last question here, question number nine, uh, what does Jesus write in the sand uh, so there's not a lot of context given to the question, uh, but this is the, about a story in the Gospel of John where a woman is about to be stoned by uh, a group of men, and uh, she's about to be stoned for adultery. And uh, Jesus kneels down and writes in the sand and then famously says, uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone, and all the men drop their stones and walk away. And so uh, it doesn't say, the Bible doesn't give us what he's writing in the sand, uh, and so it's a it's a topic of discussion. Just what what was he writing? Was he writing some woman? Was he writing? There's a uh, kind of a ancient theory that maybe Jesus was writing the sins of the men down uh, for them to see, uh, which would just be like really savage of Jesus. And I don't know. I think it was probably more about connection with the woman than it was content. Like did you, he just paused for a moment? Like he interrupted this really. Um, uh, traumatic, uh, painful moment. And I think he just kind of paused to connect with her more than it was to like beat up on these men anymore. But maybe he did. I think that would be uh, pretty fitting as well. But we I don't know what he wrote. I, I don't, um, that's not typically my, uh, that's not, those aren't my favorite things to, to think or talk about. Cause I just go, you know, they didn't tell us what it was. And I think if it were really important, they would have told us. I think it was like intentionally left out. Um, for us to say, I don't know what was going on. And so I'm, I'm happy with, I'm happy to say, I don't know what he wrote in the sand, but um, if you have a theory, I would love to hear it. I think it's interesting. Okay. So that was all, those are all nine of our questions. So today, uh, regardless of uh, your opinions about any of this, uh, regardless of where we all have room to grow or where we've totally figured out. My hope is that we can root ourselves, we can root our identities, we can plant ourselves firmly in this identity, that we are created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free. Right? Regardless of, of how we feel about any of these questions, regardless of how much we know or don't know, 
that we just say, all that gets pushed to the side, that all of us are created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free. And so gather, um, as, we, um, as we wrap up today, first, just thanks for asking your questions. And then second, I just want to remind you that you are created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free. That that is who you are. That is the fundamental truth of your identity, whether you feel it or not. That you belong to God from eternity to eternity. Thanks be to God. Amen. Gather, I love you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.